Hello, listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in our show notes, including our toll-free number, where you can leave a message, ideas for future episodes, or tell us about events, campaigns, or victories in your union. Please check out Life on Record. The largest strike occurred in June 1835 when the Philadelphia Trade Union organized unionists from 17 crafts to join a walkout initiated by Irish coal heavers who unloaded barges along the Schuylkill River. This was the first general strike in U.S. history and a resounding success. After three weeks, the city council announced that Municipal workers would henceforth work 10 hours a day with no reduction in pay, and private employers quickly followed suit. The National Trades Union was part of a wider uprising among white workers as craft unions mobilized for the 10-hour day. Women and unskilled men built their own organizations and struck for better pay. In June 1835, against the backdrop of Philadelphia's general strike, some 500 working women from various trades formed a citywide federation, the Female Improvement Society, that won wage increases for seamstresses who sewed uniforms for the U.S. Army. Among unskilled men, no one outshone Irish canal workers for militancy. They staged at least 14 strikes in the 1830s and in January 1834 clashed with federal troops sent to put down a strike on the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal in Maryland. Employers fought the labor movement by firing and blacklisting activists and by taking unions to trial. In 1835, in a case involving a shoemaker's union in Geneva, New York, the state's Supreme Court ruled that both unions and strikes were illegal under conspiracy law. Reforms the NTU had endorsed made some headway as the Democratic and Whig parties vied for working-class votes. In 1840, President Martin Van Buren endured Democrats to working men by instituting the 10-hour day for employees on federal construction projects. Not to be outdone, Whigs in command of the Massachusetts Supreme Court gave unionism a landmark legal victory in 1842, overturning a conspiracy verdict against bootmakers union in Boston. Court ruled in the case of Commonwealth v. Hunt that workers had the right to organize and strike for useful and honorable purposes. In contrast to craft unions of the 1830s, the 10-hour day organizations of the 1840s and 1850s sought to decrease 
the workday through political reform. A number of legislatures yielded to the pressure. New Hampshire passed a 10-hour law in 1847, as did Pennsylvania and Maine in 1848, and six more states over the course of the 1850s. Loopholes made these laws unenforceable, however. The labor movement emerged after the Depression was more diverse than the movement of the 1830s and less cohesive. For the most part, however, union building was a local affair. Labor conventions and federations generally paid much more attention to issues like land reform, 10-hour legislation, worker cooperatives, than to organizing on the job. Divisions on the basis of sex, nationality, and color permeated the labor movement as well. Women were mostly excluded or treated as men's underlings and helpmates, while immigrants and American natives cooperated in some parts of the movement, other parts were hostile to foreign-born. Black workers were the ultimate outsiders, routinely the target of violence as well as exclusion. Many white labor activists embraced the movement to abolish slavery, but a great many more did not. In 1848, the first Women's Rights Convention was held in Seneca Falls, New York. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men and women are created equal, became the motto. This sentiment had been voiced since as early as 1831. Sarah Monroe, the president of New York City's Tayloresses Society, chided working men for making light of a wage strike by her union. In a speech reprinted by the labor press, she asked, If it is unfashionable for men to bear oppression in silence, why should it not also become unfashionable with the women, or do they deem us more able to endure hardships than they themselves? In many cases, working men actively supported women's militancy. During the strike wave of the mid-1830s, journeymen's unions backed strikers and women and men struck jointly in Philadelphia's shoe and textile factories. A decade later, the 10-hour campaign in western Pennsylvania's cotton mills was punctuated by rip-roaring strikes of women operatives who rallied male friends to help. In 1845 and again in 1848, the strikers tore down factory gates and stormed in to oust workers who had remained on the job. Hundreds of men had shown up to cheer these actions and to dissuade the police from stepping in. Let them hit one of these gals if they dare, and we will fetch them out of their boots, one man told the Pittsburgh Journal. The National Trade Union, whose local supported a women's strike excluded women's unions, voted at its 1835 convention to oppose the multiplying of all description of labor for females. In 1836, the NTU appointed a committee on female labor. In its report to that year's convention, the committee urged journeymen's unions to help working women organize for better labor conditions, 
but only as a stopgap effort to curb the excess before we destroy the evil. The ultimate goal, the report insisted, should be a woman's removal from workshops and factories. Since working women were very blind to their real interests, they had so far failed to recognize the beauty of that goal, and so it was imperative that union men enlighten them. Every woman had to understand that her labor should be only of a domestic nature and that taking industrial work was the same as tying a stone around the neck of her natural protector, man. The craft unions recognized in the late 1840s and early 1850s, their posture towards men was much the same. They defined female industrial labor as an evil and proposed as a solution that working men receive a family wage sufficient to keep the women folk at home. There were moments of unity. Women and men cooperated closely in the New England Working Men's Association, whose constitution granted women's unions all rights, privileges, and obligation enjoyed by the men's. President Sarah Bigley of the Low Female Labor Reform Association presented an address at the first National Industrial Congress in 1845, and women took part in the land reform movement under the National Reform Association. The most celebrated example of labor solidarity between men and women was the Great Shoemaker Strike of 1860, in which some 20,000 shoe workers in factory towns across New England in the factories staged a six-week strike for better pay. The strike was led by a journeyman's union but included a good many women. Those who did outwork at home as well as those employed in factories. Women were especially active in Lynn, Massachusetts where they staged the strike's most widely reported parade. On March 7th, two weeks into the strike, about 800 women braved a snowstorm to march through the town behind a banner proclaiming that American ladies will not be slaves, give us fair compensation, and we will labor cheerfully. Just days before the March 7th parade, factory women angrily abandoned the strike when outworkers altered the high female wage demand earlier approved at a mass meeting. If the great shoemaker's strike epitomized labor solidarity between men and women, it also revealed the boundaries of solidarity centered in the family. Another fault line among working people was that between immigrants and natives. Labor campaigns of the 1840s and 1850s coincided and in some instances overlapped with an anti-immigrant movement that especially targeted Irish Catholics. During the Depression, nativism surged under the auspice of the American Republican Party, which was founded in 1841 and had branches in New Orleans, Charleston, Boston, New York, Newark, Philadelphia, and St. Louis. By late 1843, 
The American Republican platform called for immigrants' exclusion from politics. Public officers, it said, should be reserved for native-born citizens and immigrants should have to gain the right to vote. In 1844, American Republican candidates swept municipal elections in New York City and a wave of anti-Irish riots in Philadelphia claimed more than 30 lives. The most popular was the Order of United American Mechanics, which began in Philadelphia in 1845 and quickly spread to other cities in both the North and South. Kraft Journeyman made up the great bulk of OUAM members. Though master craftsmen with small shops joined as well. American mechanics helped each other find jobs, promoted abstinence from alcohol, profanity, gambling, and sexual vice and maintained a mutual insurance system that provided sick, unemployment, and death benefits. They also boycotted immigrant-owned businesses, pledged not to work with immigrant labor, and gathered on patriotic holidays to proclaim Protestant America's superiority to Catholic nations. Immigrants built unions and, in some cities became the labor movement driving force. The Labor Union Benevolent Association organized in 1843 by Irish working men on New York City's docks and construction sites became the country's biggest labor organization with 6,000 members in 1850. In 1849, British coal miners in Schuylkill County, Pennsylvania, established the country's first miners' union, one of many U.S. labor organizations founded by veterans of radical reform campaigns led by the Chartist movement in England. Many German unionists had radical backgrounds. The most militants were the 48ers, who had taken part in Germany's failed democratic revolution of 1848. Natives, as well as foreign-born labor activists, attended mass meetings to congratulate British workers when Parliament passed a 10-hour law in 1847. Irish workers replaced Yankee women departing for better jobs, and complaints against them were nothing more than bigotry dressed up as a grievance. Some of the loudest of the complaints came from conservative quarters like the New England offering a journal edited by a former mill worker, largely written by Yankee operatives and subsidized by textile companies. In the mid-1850s, a new nativist political movement gathered across the country and nowhere did it garner more, than, more support than in Massachusetts. In 1842, nativist fraternities organized the American Party, often called the Know-Nothings, because its founders disclaimed knowledge of secret societies to which they belonged. The party's national platform replicated that of the American Republicans, but local Know-Nothings often linked nativism, anti-Catholicism to other causes. 
In Massachusetts, where they endorse labor reform, abolitionism, and women's rights, Know Nothing swept the state elections of 1854, winning the governorship every seat in the state senate and all but a few in the assembly. Once in power, they fired immigrants from state jobs, excluded them from the state militia, formed a committee to investigate Catholic convents, and instituted a literacy test for voters. They also enlarged the public school system, required that industrial workers under 15 attend school several months of the year, abolished imprisonment for debt, granted property rights to married women, and passed resolutions after resolutions against slavery. The most persistent and pernicious division among American workers was the color line, not a single labor union federation included both black and white workers. Black activists were invited to a National Industrial Congress exactly once in 1851, and the White Mechanics Assembly of Philadelphia stormed out in protest. A fair number of white workers supported the abolition movement. In upstate New York, the workingmen's parties of the early 1830s included anti-slavery plans in their platforms. Later that decade, Kraft Freeman provided the lion's share of signatures on the petition that New York City's abolitionists sent to Congress. Mill workers in Lowell organized a female anti-slavery society in 1832, and 20 years later, abolitionism had a large following in factories throughout New England. In the 1850s, abolitionists alliance with Know Nothing's alienated immigrants worker opposition to abolitionism also stemmed from desires to preserve the Democratic Party, whose core constituencies were working men in the North and slaveholders in the South. Anti-abolitionism rested on the same hardcore racism that made race rights part of the American landscape. Writers often directed their fury at anti-slavery activists and symbols. Black abolitionists also took direct action to liberate fugitive slaves who had been recaptured. In 1833, an armed crowd in Detroit stopped a sheriff and his deputies from returning a Kentucky fugitive to his former master. In 1836, a group of women barged into a Boston courthouse and rescued two women fugitives. Starting that same year in New York City, many communities formed vigilance committees to harbor fugitive slaves, defend recaptured fugitives in the courts, and organize direct actions in their behalf. In the workplace, as in unions, the color line was rigidly enforced. In 1838, Frederick Douglass arrived in New Bedford, Massachusetts, the center of the U.S. welling industry and home to mariners of all colors from all over the world. The black community numbered over a thousand in a city of 12,000 and included Americans, West Black Indians, 
and Africans from the Cape Verde Islands, black men voted, the public schools were integrated, and abolitionism had broad support among whites. But when Douglas applied for a caulking work at a shipyard, he was told that the white caulkers would strike rather than work alongside a black man. There were occasions when black and white workers made common cause. In 1835, they went on strike together at shipyards in Baltimore and Washington, D.C. Racial clashes were more typical, however, especially between black workers and white immigrants. In 1842, Irish coal miners in eastern Pennsylvania violently drove black men out of the mines and Philadelphia's coal heavers warned that a riot would ensue if their employers hire any black men. Black workers organized local unions of waiters, barbers, sailors, and ship caulkers. Sometimes a black union cooperated with its white counterpart. In 1853, in New York City, white hotel waiters who had just organized a union sought the counsel of the black waiters protective association, a black union that had already won raises. A black waiter named Peter Hickman told them, gentlemen, I advise you to strike for $18 a month, and if the landlords of this city do not give it, that you turn out, and be assured that we will never turn in in your place at less. When white waiters did strike, a second black union hastily formed and sent its members to take the strikers' places. The Protective Association denounced the new group as a tool of the hoteliers and supported the strike to the end. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcasts, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening.